Good morning. What a joy to see everybody here this morning. Let's ask the Holy Spirit to come and, and feed us and strengthen us uh, with the Lord's Word this morning. Father, I thank you. I thank you so much for your leadership. Thank you, God, that you are with us. I thank you, God, that we worship not some petty idol made of wood and stone, but the very one who created all things. Lord, we love you. We're so thankful for you. We're so thankful for your instruction to us, and we ask you to open our hearts and our minds this morning to what you have to say to us, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, I think uh, we're good on the, the microphone here. Sounds like it. So let's go ahead and get started. So today, in our Acts series, we're going to be looking at Acts 16 through 19. These are large chunks of Scripture that we've been going through in this series. So obviously we can't cover all that we might want to cover if we're going through uh, every, every story in more detail. But there are some, some key principles that we can see uh, when we ex- examine the Scriptures in these larger chunks as well. And today we're going to look at Acts 16 through 19 through a specific lens, namely what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Paul makes so many profound statements in 1 and 2 Corinthians as to what it means to be a true servant of Christ. And one of the most profound statements among many in 2 Corinthians 5, or excuse me, in, in the book of 2 Corinthians is 2 Corinthians 5.14 where he gives us a glimpse into the driving force between his life, or behind his life, behind his ministry, behind his service to the king, behind his way of relating to the churches and the flock under his care and leadership. He says, the love of Christ compels us. Other translations of this verb Compel The love of Christ controls us. This is what directs us and guides us. Guides our, our speech. Guides our way of relating to others. This is what controls us and directs us. The love of Christ constrains us. There's limitations. This is what the love of Christ uh, does. He, he says, do this, don't do that. Go here, don't go there. There's a constraining influence based on his leadership. Or the love of Christ urges us on. It's the, it's the driving force, the motivating power that leads us to do what He calls us to do in His service. The love of Christ impels us. You could also think of it as the love of Christ hemming you in, that He, he sets a hedge. He says, this is my priority now. This is not my priority. Give yourself to this. Keep going. Focus on this. The love of Christ presses in on us and presses us hard. And when you have a lot of pressures coming against you, you need the love of Christ to press you forward. All of these are powerful images of what drives Paul in his mission. What a powerful statement that the love of Christ in all of the the multiple senses in which we can understand his love the faithfulness of Christ to His plan for Israel, to His plan for the nations of the earth, 
drives him to do his work in and through Paul. The love of Christ, the loyalty of Christ to his Father urges him on. The mercy of Christ, the compassion of Jesus drives us forward to extend mercy and compassion in his name to sinners like you and me. What a powerful statement. And what, we, what I love about Acts 16 through 19 is we have a number of powerful and inspiring illustrations and examples of what this looked like in the life and ministry of the man who made this statement. And so that's what we're going to do today. We're going to first look at this statement in its context in 2 Corinthians 5. We wanted to, to get a, a clear idea of what he means when he says the love of Christ compels me within its context so we understand what he's saying. Then we're going to shift to Acts 16 through 19, and we're going to look at some real specific examples in real time, in real space, in a particular time in history where we see this thing lived out through him as he's sharing the gospel in various places. We're going to look at the example of this one who told the Corinthians in his previous letter, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. So let's look at 2 Corinthians 5. There we go. Thank you, Nate. <clears throat> Before we specifically start working through this text, let's just take a couple seconds to situate it within the broader context of 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians is, is, you know, there's multiple things that Paul is accomplishing in this letter. But one of the questions that we see come forth from this, from this letter is, what is a true apostle and what is a false apostle? What are the marks of authenticity of a messenger authentically commissioned, set apart, and sent by the crucified, risen, ascended, and coming again Messiah? One genuinely sent by the crucified Messiah and imposters. And we see Paul Actually, he feels pretty uncomfortable a lot of times in this letter because he's making a defense of his genuine apostolic ministry and his plea is that the fruits would speak for themselves and that the Corinthians themselves would be his advocates and he wouldn't have to go this route. But the situation in Corinth was getting pretty desperate and so he, he writes a letter that I'm very thankful he wrote because it's so inspiring. What does a true servant of the crucified Messiah look like? So when we're considering Acts 16 through 19, let's keep that question in the back of our minds. What does an authentically sent messenger of Jesus the Messiah, somebody that Jesus considers to be a faithful representative of who he is, both in word and in deed, what does that look like in Acts 16 through 19? And let's keep in mind what's this question in the back of our minds. And Look at these chapters through the lens of what's happening on the inside of the man who says these things. So, I'm going to summarize chapters 1 through 4 of 2 Corinthians with the phrase, For your sake, not for myself, not for my own advantage, not for my own benefit and well-being, but for your sake, for your benefit and your advantage and your well-being. Would we agree this is what Jesus did for us on the cross? Absolutely. In obedience to the Father for the salvation 
of wicked human beings like myself. For our sake, he went there so that the punishment we deserved, as Isaiah 53 says, was placed upon him instead of us so that we could share an eternal inheritance with him for your sake. And he starts off in chapter 1 and he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the, the God of mercy, the God of all comfort, the one who comes to our aid and gives us strength and helps us. Because when we go through trials and sufferings and we're tested in our service to Jesus, and you see how his spirit comes and gives breath to, your inner man, to our inner man and strengthens us to keep going, to keep proclaiming, to keep forgiving, to keep blessing when we're cursed, and all of these things that we see in the book of Acts. When you see God sustain us through that, it will be a source of encouragement and strength to you for your sake. And in 1 Corinthians, or excuse me, 2 Corinthians 1 through 4, he gives several different examples. He says, remember, consider what would happen to us in the province of Asia, and let it be an example to you that inspires you to wholehearted love and patient endurance and faithfulness in your own service. He says, we endured such great pressures when we were there, far beyond our own ability to endure that we came to this conclusion, we're dead. We thought we'd receive the death sentence. There's no way we're going to come out of this alive. But God freed us from the jaws of death. God miraculously came to our deliverance, deliverance and rescued us. And he put us in this situation so that we could learn to rely not on ourselves, but on the God who raises the dead. Therefore, follow our example. And when he puts you in those situations that are beyond your own strength, that are so intense sometimes or so complex that you have no idea how you're going to get through it. Look at what he did for us and take heart and take courage. And we see this happening over and over in, in, in Acts 16 through 19. He goes on to say, You've seen our sincere and holy conduct among you. Your consciences have abundant evidence to evaluate us and conclude that our motives are pure. We're not in this for your money. We're not trying to ask you for your money. We're not, we're not in this to peddle the word of God for profit. That's not why we speak the message of God. We're proclaiming it even when we have nothing to gain of it from it except lie, being thrown to the lions and being flogged in synagogues. You've seen the way we conduct ourselves, that our motives are pure because the Messiah's motives are pure. He does it for the glory of the Father. And by the mercy of God, you've seen that it is possible, as wicked as I am, Paul calls himself the chief of sinners in another place. You've seen that it is possible for God to take a, the chief of sinners and to make my motives pure for your sake too. The love of Christ, a love that's pure and purely motivated for your sake is what compels me, he says. God can witness that it was your, for your sake that I changed my plan. Not, I, Paul, some things happened and Paul wasn't able to do what he thought he was going to be able to do. And they were, they were criticizing him for this. And he says, no, it was for your sake that I came, that I didn't come when I, when I thought I would. I sent, Timothy, or I sent Titus to you instead with a letter. And it was for your sake because I know if I had come, I would have had to exercise my authority very severely. And I didn't want to do that. The Messiah is merciful, merciful and he's long-suffering and patient. And so I sent Timothy, or excuse me, I sent Titus before me as a, and as a way to, to appeal to you before I would have to come 
and bring order into your midst through harsher and stronger means because there were a lot of problems in the church of Corinth, as we all know. He leads us in triumphal procession in Christ. He's, our, he's like a military commander going before us. He's taken us captive. We were slaves to sin. We, were, we, we had given our allegiance to false gods and false powers. And He delivered us from, from them and brought us into allegiance to Himself. He made us His captives. And He's leading us about in triumphal procession. We're humiliated, but we know that it's for your sake that we endure these things for which we're scorned. For your sake. For your sake. We have this treasure in jars of clay. Oh, I love 2 Corinthians 4. To show that this all-surpassing power, it's not of us. The fruit that you're seeing through our lives and ministry, he says, it's not of us. There's no way we could do this. This is a work of God, and God has made it a point to keep us in that place of weakness so that there'll be no boasting in the fruit that comes forth through us, he says. We're ministers of a new covenant that comes with glory, but this glory, it's packaged in weak and broken vessels so that we won't rob the living God of that which he is due. This is in contrast to the false apostles who live for themselves. If you keep reading 2 Corinthians, you get some windows in what it means to be a false apostle in God's eyes. They live for themselves, their own honor, their own financial prosperity, their own advancement. They want your money. They want you to grovel at their feet. They slap you around. They don't really give a rip about the flock. They don't care about the things Jesus cares about with respect to his people. They claim to be apostles, and then Paul uses really strong language, he says, but they're actually messengers of Satan who himself masquerades as an angel of light. And so, this issue, what is a true apostle and what's a false apostle? This is a very, very important issue because through this issue, the, the Lord is saying, I'm setting those whom I truly send commission as an example. I'm parading them as an example of my very own life. And this is precious to me. The fragrance of the knowledge of God. People get to choose whether they respond positively or negative to that, but let it at least be to a faithful representation of who God is. It's a very, very weighty issue. And so this brings us to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Therefore, he says, therefore in light of what we just talked about, whether we are at home or away, what he means there, whether by life or by death, we make it our aim, we make it our goal, our ambition, the thing we're desiring above all else, to be pleasing to Him. We're not trying to please mere men, mere mortals who are, live, you know, but, a, but a, a handbreadth, a vapor. We're not trying to please mere men who live only a short time. We're trying to please the one who knows all about us and who created all things and the one before whom we're going to give an account one day. We're trying to please Him. This is our ambition. For, here's our reason, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each may be repaid for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. And Paul makes this a strong point here because 
the Corinthians, one of the reasons he was having some tension with them was because he's telling them, you guys have to be careful what you do with your bodies. You can't have immorality in your midst without paying the consequences. God will have to bring discipline to you. And he's going, we're going to give an account with what we do in our bodies. These are holy vessels. And so be careful. And so Paul is saying, we're going to give an account. We fear God. And so in this particular context, this is what he's highlighting. Verse 11, Therefore, since we know the fear of God, this is foundational, we know what it means to fear God. We know as apostles who have been entrusted with the gospel, we know that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and so we're going to lay foundations that train men and women from all the nations to walk in the fear of God. We know what it is to walk out of an awareness of the age to come, out of an awareness of the day that we're going to give an account of our motives and our deeds and our actions. We know what it means to fear God, and therefore we try to persuade people. The word here is pitho. It means to persuade. And interestingly, this word appears four times in Acts 16 through 19. We fear God, and so we're trying to persuade people to fear God, and we're trying to persuade them to go on fearing God, go on giving their loyalty to Jesus, go on following Jesus' example. We're trying to persuade people to love His commandments, to walk before Him, and to walk in the Holy Spirit, and to mortify the desires of the flesh. So many different aspects of what it means to fear the Lord, but we're trying to persuade people both in the way we live our lives, first and foremost, and also in our plea and in our appeal and in our cry. What we are is plain to God. What we are as true servants, as true apostles, is plain to God, and I hope it is plain to your consciences. Remember, the conscience is what discerns right from wrong. He's basically saying, look at our lives. We've, we've worked before you day and night. Look at us. We've suffered. We've gone around in rags. We believe this message. That's why we go through this. We actually do believe it. We're not in it for ourselves. Look at us. Let your conscience evaluate us, whether we're true or false. You've seen how we've lived. God knows, and we pray that it's clear to you as well as you inspect our lives and watch us. Verse 12, we're not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you an opportunity to be proud of us. In other words, we don't, we, I feel uncomfortable having to put my credentials before you, he says. You guys have been the beneficiaries of all of our labors and self-sacrifice. You should be the ones commending us. You should be defending us. So that you have a, may have a reply for those who take pride in outward appearance rather than what is in the heart. Note that. Those who take pride in outward appearance rather than what is in the heart. The new covenant ministry is the opposite. The law written on the heart and on the mind. And it's for this for which we'll receive praise from God. On that day, the love of Christ on the inside compels us. We're not concerned about the fame and the fortune or the things that men laud and praise in the sage. We're concerned about what Jesus thinks and His his goals and his ambitions. Verse 13, For if we are out of our minds, if we seem crazy, as some say, it seems maybe some people were accusing them of this, some commentators think, it's for God. We don't live like this because it's awesome, because it feels good. We're not in, a, in this for our own comforts. We're in this for the sake of God. 
And so if we seem out of our minds because we're, we're poor, because we're not taking money from everybody and fleecing the flock all the time, it's for God because God doesn't fleece the flock. He lives and lays down his life for the flock. And if the world thinks it's out, we're out of our minds for that, praise God. In the age to come, we'll see who was in their right mind, according to God, right? If we're out of our minds, if we seem crazy, it's for God. If we're in our right mind, it's for you. Think about some of Paul's messages and sermons in the book of Acts. I mean, these are, he, is, he holds nothing back. He, he'll pull out the, with the philosophers, he'll pull out the big words. With the people who don't, who are, you know, just the, who are in the, the you know, they're, they're, they're not the kind of the academic elite. They're, they're people maybe just, uh, they, they, might, they might be laborers or whatever sphere of life they are. He doesn't care. He'll meet them there. He wants to persuade them. And if he's in his right mind, and if he's before Festus or any of these other Roman leaders and giving an account, he's pulling it all out. He has no problem arguing. He has no problem engaging in apologetics, whatever it takes. If he's in his right mind, it's for their sake. For the love of Christ compels us and urges us on and constrains us and controls us and presses in on us and presses us hard. I want to know Christ. I want others to know him. I want people to be saved. I want them to come into the knowledge of God. You are my crown, he tells Various of his churches, you're my crown, you're my joy. I want to see you with me on that day. And we're both saying, look, you made it. Yes, look, you made it. Hey, we made it together. This is what's driving him. The love of Christ impels us, impresses us even through intense difficulties and hardships and pressures and stigma and misunderstanding and being viewed with suspicion and people questioning you. Nobody likes that. But Jesus himself endured that, even though his heart was pure and his motives were, were good, and it was for our sake that he died. And as, as his messengers, sometimes we experience those same things. And yet, because of the love of Christ, we keep going, and we keep loving, and we keep serving, and we keep doing it for others' sake. For the love of Christ compels us, since we have reached this conclusion, that one died for all, there's a, mess, there's a sacrifice that has the power to redeem all humanity, Jew or Gentile. The climactic expression of God's love and faithfulness to His creation. One died for all, and therefore all died. All human beings, the shroud of death covers all human beings, and we all need a solution. And God has made a solution available to the human race. He died for all, so that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for the one who died for them, for their sake, and was raised for them. He died, and He's put His life into us, and He's teaching us to no longer live for ourselves, for our sake. And therefore, Paul says, as His representative... I'm going to serve you for your sake and for the sake of His glory. So we're going to look at, uh, turn our attention now to Acts 16 through 19 and look at it through the lens of what we've just talked about here. Here we'll consider a number of examples from Acts. 
with particular focus on one example if we have time, Acts 17. There are other characters in these chapters, but because of our focus on 2 Corinthians 5 and this phrase, the love of Christ compels me and compels us, we'll focus on Paul and what follows. Acts 16 through 19, Paul and his companions were compelled, urged on, constrained, impressed by the love of Christ to what? Let's look. The love of Christ compels Paul to have Timothy circumcised for the sake of his mission to the Jews. Remember, uh, in, in Acts chapter 9, the Lord tells him that you're going to bear my name before Gentiles and kings and the people of Israel. We usually think of Paul as the apostle to the Gentiles, and obviously we see that aspect of his ministry mostly in the, book, in the New Testament. But we can't ever forget that his own burden was also for his people. And that his, he was called to bear the name of Jesus in the synagogues as well. I wonder how that conversation went. Hey, Timothy, <laughs> you know, <laughs> the love of Christ com- compels me. And I'm like, well, Paul, you know, like, you know, I, I want to get on board with this thing, man. But, um, but you know, we, if, if, Timothy's, if Timothy hadn't been Jewish, pro- Paul probably would not have had him be circumcised. But because... He didn't want any, uh, any hindrances moving in and out of the synagogues. In fact, Paul himself endured, he says in, in 2 Corinthians 11, 25, 24, five times 40 lashes minus one. That was synagogue discipline. He received that uh, from the synagogue leaders. And uh, that says that that's a powerful statement because he could have avoided that if he had renounced his tie to the Jewish people. But instead, he would rather... He would rather know, he would rather go into a synagogue and know that he can still go into another synagogue because he receives what they consider to be discipline. He would rather endure that than cut off his chance to share the gospel and to share Jesus with his own people. Now think about that. Next time you read the book of Acts and you see Paul, the first thing he does is go into the synagogue. (laughs) Like he has to brace, I picture him bracing himself for another 40 minus 1 pretty intense. But he does it. Why? Because what compels him? What compels him? The love of Christ compels him to go into the next synagogue and to have Timothy circumcised so that there's no questions whether, uh, you know, that would, and there's no obstacles to the, the gospel going forth among the Jew. The love of Christ compels Paul not to go to Asia or Bithynia, but to Macedonia. Isn't that interesting? The Spirit of Jesus says, don't go here. He wouldn't let them go here, but he says, no, I want you to go to Macedonia. Jesus is hemming him in and setting boundaries and saying, no, don't go to Asia right now. It's not the time. Don't go. Don't go to to Bithynia. It's not the time there. And then Paul has this vision of a man from Macedonia saying, come over and help us. Come help us. Come help us. And they, it says that they, they, they concluded that God wanted us to preach the gospel to them. So they went. The love of Christ was burning for the people of Macedonia. And so Christ says, Paul, no, not here yet. Not here yet. We'll get to those places. Go here. I'm doing something special right here, Paul. Go here. And so Paul says, yes, Lord, I'm going there. Because it's your love and leadership that urges me on 
In Philippi, he goes to the place of prayer by the river, and he shares the gospel with Lydia, who's the God-fearer. And the other women gathered there. There wasn't an official synagogue there. You have to have, in this time, you have to have ten or more Jewish men to have an official synagogue, which means there wasn't one there, and we see that most of those gathered at the river seemed to, if not all of them, were women, and which means there wasn't an official synagogue. They probably weren't getting a lot of official training in the scriptures, but they're hungry, and they're praying, and they're down at the river, and they're having this gathering. In fact, many of the Romans around them, Philippi, you know, was a Roman colony, they would have looked down, they would have looked down on this. They would have said, oh, you're taking advantage of these, 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 these women who aren't very well educated. These are the same accusations that people in missions today often hear. You know, a Muslim obviously wouldn't actually choose Christ, so they have to be uneducated or insane, right? We hear these are common things, but the Romans would have looked down on, why is this rabbi going to these, these uneducated, relatively women down by the river? There's not even a real synagogue. Well, I'll tell you why. It's because even though the Romans weren't compelled by love, the Messiah was. The Messiah cared about these women, and the love of Christ is what compels Paul, not what Romans think. It was the love of Christ that compelled him to go and share the gospel with Lydia and the others there gathered at the place of prayer in the river. Well, say also in Philippi, it was the love of Christ that compelled Paul and Silas to sing hymns in prison after being severely flogged. They must have been out of their minds, right? Being severely flogged? Why are you singing? That's crazy. How can you be in this circumstance and sing? Well, we're out of our minds for Christ's sake. He did this kind of stuff. He worshiped the Father in his sufferings. Well, we're going to follow his example. And get this talk about crazy and insane. There's an earthquake, and the jail cells are open. And they don't leave. Anybody else would say, that's my opportunity. I'm out of here. That's wise thinking. That's shrewd. Why didn't he leave? Because something stronger than a jail cell was hemming Paul in. The love of Christ restrained him. It's more important for me to share the gospel with the Philippian jailer and his family than it is for me to escape. It's more important for the prisoners to see, hear me singing to the one true God than it is for me to just watch out for my own neck because it's the love of Christ that holds me in this prison cell just as Christ's love for the Father held him and constrained him as he went to the cross. In Thessalonica, they go into the synagogue to persuade Jews. We know what it means to fear God, so we go into the synagogue 40 lashes minus one or not. We go to persuade. We go to appeal. We go to call them to repentance and to put their faith in the one true God. And <clears throat> they get ran out of town. Riots break out. They turn the whole world upside down. They have to flee. If you want a moving picture of Christ's love in Paul, and his genuine concern for the Thessalonian believers. Read 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. His deep concern, we were torn away from you, it says. 
He was afraid that maybe they've denied the faith because of the persecutions that they're facing in his absence. He says, I can't take it anymore. I had to send somebody to check it out. Praise God, he came back and told me, you're still strong. He's genuinely concerned for their well-being and their strengthening the faith because Christ in him is genuinely concerned about their well-being in the faith and their strengthening in the faith. In Athens, he shares the gospel, or sorry, in, in Berea, same thing. He goes into the synagogue, proclaims the message, tries to persuade. Thankfully, the Bereans are more noble-minded. They consider the message. In Athens, he shares the gospel in the synagogue and in the marketplace with all kinds of people. He's deeply distressed over the idolatry. And here he pulls everything out. He's quoting Greek poets. He's, he's quoting inscriptions from when he's walking in the marketplace. He is pulling out all the rhetoric that he can before the Areopagus. He's holding nothing back in the, in the synagogue and in the marketplace because the love of Christ compels him. In Corinth, uh, go, Nate, I'm not going to go through this whole passage. Go ahead and throw Acts 17 up real quick. He says, some of your, I was walking through your city, I saw an inscription to the unknown God. It's this God that I proclaim to you. As some of your own poets have said, we're his offspring. He created all things, these kinds of things. Let's go to verse 29. Therefore, since we're God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands not just invites. He says, you, this is the time for repentance. He commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. We know what it means to fear God. We know what it means to fear this one who will judge the world with justice. Who the, this, this one who's been appointed by the Father. This one who's been raised from the dead. And look at the response. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered. They thought he was crazy. What are you talking about, man? But it doesn't matter. He's just there to please the Lord. In Corinth, he tries to persuade Greeks and Jews. Stays in Corinth for a year and a half despite great opposition. And in Ephesus, he speaks there boldly, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God conducting discussions every day in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. I remember one time I was in Kenya, and these people were so hungry. We, I was going, well, okay, we'll do, our set, we'll do our seminar. We went from like 8 a.m. until 10 p.m. at night. They didn't want to stop. They were so hungry. And I think about Paul every day doing something like that. It's crazy, but the love of Christ compels him. He's not worried about how exhausted he is. He's not worried about his own schedule. It's the love of Christ that compels him. <clears throat> the love of Christ compels us. The love of Christ for the sons and daughters of Adam in Macedonia, Paul says, compels me to go to Macedonia. The love of Christ for image bearers in Philippi urges me on to Philippi. The love of Christ for, for sinners in Thessalonica, in Berea, in Athens, in Ephesus, presses me on 
hems me in to go to Thessalonica, Berea, Athens, and Ephesus. The love of Christ for people in Bloomington, Minnesota. The love of Christ for people in St. Paul, in Minneapolis. The love of Christ for people in Jordan. The love of Christ for people in the barber shops, in the taxi cabs. The love of Christ for people in the United States, in the modern synagogues. The love of Christ for the nations of the earth urges us on into all of these places with the only message by which human beings can be saved. And when we get there, the love of Christ compels us to persuade. The love of Christ compels us to plea. The love of Christ compels us to appeal and to reason and to discuss and to pray and to quote poets and to quote inscriptions and to sing praises to God with stripes on our body as the earth shakes around us as we declare the day when the one whom the Father has appointed as judge over the living and the dead, will come back. And we, before him we will all give an account and therefore call the nations of the earth to repent and receive mercy while there is still time. The love of Christ compels us. I have the worship team come up. We're going to have some prayer time. The Lord's spoken to you in any way through this. If the Lord puts it on your heart to come and kneel up here or to pray or have somebody pray for you, don't be afraid of mere men. This is between you and God. If you want somebody to pray for you on the side or just want to pray for you where you are, we'll have people to pray and minister to you and join with you. I want the love of Christ to compel me. I long, I long for my life to be transparent before God and men they can look and say, wow, they really, they really, he really believes this thing. And we see it in the way he lives his life and gives his money and of his time. And he's not trying to fleece the flock. He's, you know, I think all of us long for this. We long for this. And it's not easy. We need the power of the Holy Spirit. But I, I, I love that Paul says in, in 1 Timothy, he says, God has had mercy on me, the chief of sinners, as an example to put on display for all the earth. And that, that if the Lord can do that work in a man who calls himself the chief of sinners so that he becomes an example of the unspeakable mercy of God, as well as the, un, the amazing power of God to take a sinful person like me and make us servants from the heart. We don't live to serve ourselves anymore. This is what I long for. I believe probably what you long for as well. And so we're going to pray for that in this closing time and ask the Lord to take us to that next level of whatever this looks like in our lives. This next level of living not for ourselves, whether it's you're, you're at home every day with the kids, learning to you know, change diapers. And, or staying up awake, putting the kids to sleep at night, a new baby or something like that. I remember those nights where I'd go for days on end without sleep. You get tested, whether it's small things like this or whether it's our brothers and sisters or maybe us one day, we're facing those bigger tests of our allegiance, whatever it is. Whether it's we're considering... 
We need boldness and courage to go and share the gospel with this or that person that the Lord's been speaking to us or putting on our hearts. Whatever it looks like, let's ask the Lord to compel us and urge us on to that next step of love and obedience.